0: Kind and gracious words from Matt. So appreciated. So appreciated the worship today. It was... Um, I I just want to tell you, I mean, what everybody already knows. I know this sounds boring, but God loves us. He's crazy in love with us. And you can't beat that. Today we're going to talk about Purim. And then we're going to talk about... Um, Finances, and I know finances may seem a little kernel, but I want to tell you that God is preparing us for works of service, and it's all—it's all part of it. So um, I thought about the grinders, is it, but I thought, well, it's—we're not really reading text, and uh, it would probably add another fifteen to twenty minutes to the sermon, so. Ooh. So let me see if this works for me. Maybe. Ooh. Oh, wait. wait. Okay. Oh, one more. Okay, maybe I've got it upside down. No? Yeah, yeah. If you. So how do I get to my first slide? Okay, there it is. Okay, thank you. The down button? Okay. Okay, okay. <laughs> so we're going to talk about Purim. Now you can look at this little fella and he's uh, blowing his horn and he's, um, maybe he's in the shape of a homotash but anyway. Um, so so Purim is... Uh, it's not one of the holidays of God listed in in um, gosh in Leviticus twenty three. Instead, it's the, it's a commanded holiday from Mordecai. But let me tell you the story. So first of all, we have um, in terms of history, we have the Babylonian exile. You know when when. Uh, Jeremiah said, "You know, you got to go with the Babylonians," and they said no. And then the Babylonians uh, took over. And then, when the um, when many of the Jews were taken to Babylonia under King King (laughs) sorry under King Nebuchadnezzar, um, soon Daniel was appointed number two. And uh, Daniel was faithful. And as he was on his journey there, I mean, his uh, lifetime of service, he ran into Jeremiah's prophecy that after 70 years, the Jews would go back. And so he started praying. He, uh, he prayed God's prophecy. So after the 70 years, there was a new king called King Artaxerxes, and there was a new empire called the Medes-Persians and nehemiah was somber and the king said what's wrong and he said how can i be joyful when my um when my city is destroyed and my people are in exile and so god was um, so the king was moved by god and he allowed nehemiah to go and rebuild jerusalem at least rebuild the walls of jerusalem so when he built started rebuilding the walls of jerusalem that itself set in place another prophecy, because Jesus said he talked about the 70 weeks of years. The last seven is a tribulation, but the first 69 weeks 69 times seven is 483. And from the year that Nehemiah started rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, that started a countdown. To the point where Jesus was revealed, I mean that was a um, that's and that's that's why we can't have um, here just a second that's why we can't have messiahs just popping up because God actually gave us the year that the Messiah would come whoops what am I doing so um so Jesus came and he said, before the synagogue, you know, the favorable year of the Lord is with you. Now, after Nehemiah started building the temple, of course, after a little while, Ezra came and he was the high priest, or he was the priest. And then, um, and then time went by and uh, there was a king, Ahasuerus. And Ahasuerus was the leader, was the king of Medes, Persia. And he threw a big party. And when he threw that party, he wanted Vashti to come out and he was going to display her before all these guests. And of course, they were drinking and and she was humiliated and she said, I won't do it. So then the king divorced Vashti. The reason he divorced her is because she was defiant. And the king said to himself, "If she defies me, then that will encourage all the wives in the kingdom to defy their husbands, and we can't have that." <laughs> so he divorced her, <laughs> and then um, so so then they had this uh, hunt for a new wife, and they they were looking for all the you know the pretty ladies, and uh, and so they chose Esther. Well, after she was chosen, Mordecai, who was faithful, and he used to sit outside the um, the palace gates. He overheard this plot and this plot, you know, these two men were going to kill the king and Mordecai being loyal, reported it and it was written in the annals of the king. And yet they didn't tell the king. So. There was also this man named Haman and Haman became number two and Haman used to say, look at me, look at me, see how important I am. Look at me riding on this horse and everybody would bow to him. But Mordecai would not bow to him because that was idolatry. So that made Haman angry. So Haman had the king create this decree. You know, to kill all the Jews, and the king didn't know what he was doing, so he signed this decree. So what happened was that one day the king could not sleep. He got up and he asked that the annals of the kings of meets Persia was read to him, and um, and they told him about Mordecai, and he and the king said, you know, King Art or. Er, Uh, Hazarus, he said, was anything ever done to honor Mordecai, you know, for his um, for his honesty and his, you know, what he did for me. And they said no. So then Haman comes in, and I want to, I want, this is an aside. So Haman was called Haman the Agagite. And he was named the Agagite because Agagites were the descendants of Agag. And Agag was the last king of, of Amalek. So Saul was commanded by God to kill all the Amalekites because they carried this evil and wicked spirit with them. He killed all of them except for King Agag and those sheep. So Samuel comes and he says, why do I hear this bleeding of sheep? And, um, and then... You know, he learns about King Agag, and then Samuel himself thrust him through with a sword and killed him. So you would think that there would be no Amalekites left. But there was. And and the tradition or the thought was that, that last night, after all the Amalekites were gone except for him, that somehow he impregnated somebody and that there was a descendant and then a line. So Haman was um, was part of all that. Anyway, so Haman walks into the king and he says, and the king says, um, what should I do to honor the person who the king delights in? <laughs> and Haman thought, well, who could who could the king delight in more than me, moi? (laughs) And so he says, put him on the king's horse, wrap him in the king's robe, and have somebody lead and say, this is the one how, you know, God rewards the one who the king, or, you know, that the king delights in. And so God said, what a wonderful idea, Haman. Mordecai. He's the one on the horse and you're the one to honor him. So Haman was humiliated. But Haman also built gallows for Mordecai because he so hated him. When the decree went out to kill the Jews, then Mordecai saw the decree and so did the fellow Jews. And there was great mourning in the land and Mordecai came to Esther and Mordecai said to her, you got to intervene. And she said, I can not intervene because unless he lifts up that that scepter, I'm doomed. He'll kill me. We'll be killed. I'll be killed. And and then Mordecai says, who knows that you weren't brought and installed as queen for a time such as this. And of course this isn't just for Esther. This is for each one of us because God has a place for each one of us. Well, she said, okay. But me and my attendants will fast and will pray and and you, Mordecai, and those, you know, the Jews, you have to fast and pray too. So then the king... So then she walks into the king's room. He lifts up the scepter, and um, and the king says, "What do you want? I'll do anything for you." And she says, "Come to the banquet. You and Haman." Now Haman found out that he was invited, and boy was he proud. He was uh, he thought, "Boy, am I special that I've been <laughs> invited to this banquet?" So he goes to the banquet with the king, and the king says. Now, tell me, what do you want? And um, and she says, this is what I want. I want you to come to another banquet tomorrow night. And so the king and Haman went. And then and then he says at the second banquet, what do you want, dear, dear um, Esther? And she says, She says, there's this edict out, and if it was only to enslave us, if it was only to reduce all of us, you know, the Jews to slavery, I wouldn't have troubled the king. But this edict is to kill us, to kill all of us, including me. And the king said, who would do such an evil and devious thing? And then Esther said, this man, Haman, Suddenly, Haman went from being proud to being quite depressed quickly, quickly. (laughs) And so um, the king walks out, and then he gets down on his hands and knees, and he's praying, and he's asking Esther, please, please spare my life. So then the king walks in, and um, he says, what are you trying to do, accost my wife? And, uh, And then the king decides to kill him. Well, it was very convenient because you see, there were these gallows, and they were like a hundred feet tall and uh so that was a you know place for Haman and his sons. and then in the meantime, the Jews were allowed to defend themselves. So they sent out the swiftest horses because the date of of their destruction had already been set, so he sent out the fastest horses. And uh, they got to all these different cities and then the Jews were ready to defend themselves and God gave them great victory and they were not destroyed. I should have sent this one up because this is you can see Mordecai on the horse and he's smiling and you can see um, Haman and he's not too happy. So what about these Amalekites, and why were they trying to destroy the Jews? You know, and I would like to propose that it was spiritual, not just um, a human grievance. And there was a, um, in Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve had eaten from the apple and God was creating a verdict upon them, and God said to the snake, you know, that, that you'll, like, bite her heel, but that one of hers, her, her descendants will, will um, bruise your head. And by that, he meant to kill him, you know, to kill Satan. So what was Satan to do? Satan was trying, was thinking to himself, how can I prevent all this bad stuff from happening to me? Well, when Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were born and God had created an anointing and a promise upon them, he says, ah, there's a Messiah coming. He's going to come through the Jews. So he tried to kill the Jews to destroy them during the time of Pharaoh and again during the time of um, King Ahasuerus. And then... There were judges, and then the king started, and there was King David. And from that, he he learned that there would always, that there would be one from the line of David who would be ruling as, you know, as the anointed one, as the Messiah. So now he had to destroy somehow this line of kings so that, you know, that this Messiah would never be born. And so there was a queen called Athelia. And Athalia tried to destroy all the little children, but the high priest was able to hide one of them and the line was able to continue. Then came Jesus, maybe when Jesus was born, maybe Satan didn't know, but when Simon or Simeon and Anna and, you know, when when it became clear that Jesus was Messiah then Satan had to kill Jesus before he could accomplish his mission. So what did he do? He stirred up King Herod to kill all the children in Bethlehem. When Jesus um, declared himself, you know, this, you know, in your hearing, you know, the scriptures fulfilled, he, he induced them to push him off a cliff to kill him. And then in John... Chapter 10, when Jesus said, I'm this, you know, con, you know um, said, I'm, I'm, you know, that God is my father and I'm his son, then the Pharisees tried to stone him, but Jesus slipped away. And Jesus did not die until he fulfilled his mission, which was Isaiah 53. So then, what about the church? You know, the church was carrying forth the gospel. And what happened? Well, um, first of all, the, the Pharisees tried to stop Peter and John from speaking. And as the church began to grow, then the Romans tried to destroy the church. What did they do? They would impale Christians on stakes. They would light them on fire and there was a Colosseum and, and they would be in there with the lions and all this kind of stuff. But Satan could not destroy the church. So at the end of the church age will come the tribulation. And in the tribulation, you know, it says in uh, Jeremiah 31, it says in Romans 11, it says in um, Zechariah, Zechariah 12 that um, that Israel will be saved. Satan doesn't want that. So... Um, So he's going to go to war. I mean, the dragon will be cast to the earth. And uh, Satan will try to destroy. And indeed, two-thirds will die. But God's, uh, you know, what's been prophesied will be fulfilled. That all Israel will be saved. At least all of a remnant. So what can we learn from Purim? And I would suggest that there's at least four things. One thing is that... The people of God are to walk in faith and not fear. If there's something that we fear, if some things are being set up either personally or in our society or whatever, we're to take the faith route and not the fear route. We're to trust in God. We're to pray to God. We're to seek God because God is our deliverer. We're to listen for his wisdom and to walk in his wisdom. And then we're to take action, we're to be the hands and feet of Jesus, we're to be in the battle. Okay, so we're going (laughs) to trans—sorry, I want to transition. What does the Bible say about creating wealth? Now, this may sound like it's not this, you know, quite a transition, but I would like to suggest the same steps, faith and not fear, pray for God's help, seek wisdom from God, and take action. And I want to tell you why I'm qualified to speak. I'm qualified to speak because for 40 years, I 40 years ago, I took a finance class. At first, I took two accounting classes, and I took a finance class, and I l- fell in love with it. And, um, and it's been important to me for 40 years. I mean, I, um, I've i been working in the financial industry in one way or another since I was 28 years old. I, um, you know, I, I have a business degree and I got an MBA. Um, so that's part of it, but the other part of it is, uh, you know, is that I, when I got married, uh, we had nothing. I mean, we had, um, I mean, my wife had $3,000 in a 401k, and I had $3,000 in debt to my dentist. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and all of that netted to a big zero. And then, and then about, uh, about a year into our marriage, um, she stopped working I was making ten thousand five hundred a year and she was making thirteen thousand a year so her her family income was cut by sixty percent and and so it was me and it was her and it was the baby and um, you know then we had another baby and then we had another baby and then we started (laughs) we started you know, we just dis- we decided that we would put them in private Christian school, and this Christian school became expensive. we ended up with four children, and we we're having them in this Christian school for 22 years in a row. After this, you know, paying all this tuition, the full tuition, and then, and then after, you know, after that 22 years, and she went to Bible college halftime, and then the year after that, the two of us went 24 years in a row of, of all this stuff. And, um, and we made it, and I want to tell you how we made it, because if there's anything that we did that could help any of you, then, um, then, then it would just give me joy. Before we talk about money, we have to create some disclaimers. So, I'm going to (laughs) start reading to you from Matthew 6. It says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. I mean, on earth. Do not, sorry. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys And where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in wealth. So when I give this talk, I'm not saying serve money. I'm not saying that at all, because... Because, you know, I I definitely, I totally believe in storing up treasures in heaven. I, um, let me read another one of these to you. And let me bring up this um, scripture. There's the parable of the seeds. You know, there were four seeds, one seed. Landed on the on the pathway. One landed where there was little soil. One landed among the thorns, and one landed, you know, on the good ground. And of course, each of us wants to be the good ground, because we want God to. Um, we want everything that God has for us in this life. It says, and one landed, and the one on whom the seed was sown among the thorns. This is the man who hears the word and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth. Choke out the word and it becomes unfruitful. I would like to suggest that one application of this is that the worry of the world includes poverty, because in poverty, we're always we're worrying about, you know, how am I going to meet these bills? We're worrying about all kinds of things. It steals our joy and everything else. And then the second half of this is the deceitfulness of wealth that choke out the word. And there's a scripture in Proverbs chapter 30, verses 7 and 8. This is the advice of Agar. He says, O oh God... I beg two favors from you. Let me have them before I die. First, help me never to tell a lie. And second, give me neither poverty nor riches. Give me just enough to satisfy my needs. For if I grow rich, I may deny you and say, who is the Lord? And if I am too poor, I may steal and thus insult God's holy name. And I would like to suggests that the worry of the world, that's the one who's too poor that they might steal and insult God's holy name. And that the one who, you know, um, has this deceitfulness of wealth, he's the one who says, if I grow rich, I may deny you and say, who is the Lord? So... I want to um, read something else from Matthew six. This was told to me when I was a new believer. And it really captured me and I think it's just so important. This is, this is uh, verses 25 through 32 through 34. And it says, For this reason, I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is life not more important than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, nor do they reap, nor gather crops into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more important than they? And which of you, by worrying, can add a single day to his lifespan? And why are you worried about clothing? Notice how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor, nor do they spin Thread for cloth, and yet I say to you that not even Solomon and all of his glory was clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today, and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not worry. See that? Little faith and worry, it's their opposites. Saying, what are we to eat or what are we to drink or what are we to wear for clothing for the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things for your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these will be provided to you. So do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. And each day has enough trouble of its own. And that's what I want to say. I. I want to say that I have lived a long time. There's been lots of days and lots of meals. And I have never not had food for any meal. I mean, I've never gone hungry, not even a single meal. And I've always had clothing. I've always had a place to stay. And God has been utterly faithful to this promise. And I would guess that the same is true for each of you so we're not to serve money on this earth but money is to serve us and as money serves us then we serve the lord now there's four problems with poverty you know as i see it one is fear anxiety and worry you know this um Fear and anxiety and worry create stress on our body. It creates stress in our emotions. People get sick. They get sick with worry and fear. And um, you know, it. it uh, another thing is I once heard this statistic that uh, that many adults, many adults spend even two hours a night worrying what, you know, how am I going to come up with the utility bill, how am I going to come up with the mortgage payment, you know, what, what am I going to do about this car that's broken, you know, I mean, worry, 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 and it just does damage it makes it does warfare against us. Another problem with worry is the stress that it puts into marriages and families. And I experienced this firsthand, not with not so much in my own family, but I just remember my parents, my father, you know, he would be working on the checkbook. And he said, where did all that money go? Where did all that? <laughs> And he said, there's nothing left for me. And I, I'm remembering back more than 51 years. But he would say that. And then my little brother, would um, he would go, and he would hide himself in the closet. And poverty creates the stress and, you know, it's one of the leading causes of divorce. A third problem with um, poverty is that we can't seize opportunities because this world is full of opportunities. There's so many things that we can do and uh, there's so many ways that we can try to get ahead, but if we have no money, it's hard to seize these opportunities. And a fourth uh, problem with poverty is that we don't have money for emergencies, something happens, you know, instead of withdrawing something from the bank, we have a crisis. And also, we if we can't save for retirement, then when we get old and we can't work, um, then we're stuck. So there is a progress. I am, <laughs> um, Retirement savings cannot be done in a few years, not unless you're making millions. Normally, it takes 20 or 30 years to build, you know, and, and it's better if it's even longer. So I want to tell you about something called internal control versus external control. And I ran into this when I was 18 years old and I came to Michigan State University. And it's one of the first things that they explained to us and they gave us a a handout. And this is very important. And this concept has helped me to this day and it's really a choice that each of us will make. Internal control says that we can see a need that we can ask God for wisdom and for grace, that we can dream the big dreams, that we can discover our gifts and our callings, that we can set goals and tasks, that we can discipline ourselves to get things done. In a word, we're in control, God. You know, we have all the tools that we need to get ahead, to, um, you know, to you know, to create an exciting future for ourselves and, and also to gain wealth, and that wealth, you know, is we can use it. External control is the opposite. External control restricts us. You know, some people believe that there's an angry God who just wants to crush us under his fist. You know, you can't get up, I got my fist on you. Other people believe that the devil is able to destroy them, and, and they're just, you know, think, what can we do? And then there's victim thinking. There's things or words from the past, you know, because this happened, I'll never be successful, you know. We give up. We give up, you know, with, with, um, with external control. Now, what does God say? Which camp is he in? Is God in the internal control camp or is God in the external control camp? And maybe the Bible can give us some clues here. (laughs) And um, so the first verse is Deuteronomy 8.18. It says, But you shall remember the Lord your God, for for it is he who is giving you the power to make wealth. It's not that we ignore God, we remember the Lord God. But what is his part? He's giving us the power to make wealth. And then in Psalm 35, 27, it says, Let them shop for joy and rejoice, who take delight in my vindication. May they continually say, the Lord is exalted against. You know, we exalt the Lord, and what does he do? who delights in the prosperity of his servants. God's not trying to take away the prosperity. He's delighting in our prosperity. And then Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Christ is strengthening us so that we can do all things. So there's a second thing that I learned, you know, when I was 18, the delay of gratification. It takes a lot of little no's to accomplish a big yes. And doing big things require focus and a long-term effort, and this is biblical. Paul accumulated many more treasures in heaven than he ever did on earth. You know, if Paul wanted to, Paul was a tent maker, if he wanted to, he could have employed 10 or 15 or 20 other tent makers. He could have created a business. He could have called it Paul's tent making emporium, the greatest tents made in all of the Roman empire. And people would have looked at him, the word would have gone forth and he would have made a ton of money. He would have lived in a big house He would have had a stable full of, you know, speedy horses. And he could have done anything, but that's not what he did. He counted all his loss for the gospel's sake. In other words, he was delaying gratification. In 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8, he wrote, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith in the future. There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So he was willing to um, trouble himself. He was willing to go all these places. He was willing to be stoned. He was willing to be opposed. He was willing to be flogged. He was... Willing to spend a day and a night in the sea. He was willing to do all these things. He was willing to be bound in Jerusalem and imprisoned in Rome. But he was looking for that day, you know, that God would reward him. And oh boy, what a reward he has. And he says, it's not just for me, but it's for each of us. And I also love this part. To all who have loved disappearing. You know there someday will be a rapture of the church. Some people say, well, I hope it's not in my lifetime because first I have to get married, then I have to have children, then I have to retire, then I have to do this. And I, oh, by the way, I want to go to South America and I want to learn Spanish. (laughs) You know, Um, all these things. But um, if we, you know, if we're looking forward to the day of Jesus coming back, then there's a special reward for that. So as I mentioned earlier, just to repeat myself, we are not accumulating wealth to be free of dependence upon God, but rather as a tool to help us to serve God. And our service from a pure heart will accumulate treasures in heaven. Okay. so how do we accumulate wealth? That was all like an introduction. How do we do it? We build rocket engines. Of wealth and we and we also seek to avoid the mistakes that will make us poor and before I get into these rocket engines I want to um, I want to read from 2nd Chronicles 1 8 through 12 and this is Solomon and Solomon said to God you have dealt with my father David with great faithfulness and have made made me king in his place and now Lord God Your promise to my father David is fulfilled. For you have made me king over a people as numerous as the dust of the earth. And now give me wisdom and knowledge so that I may go out and come in before this people. For who can rule this great people of yours? Then God said to Solomon, because this was in your heart, and you did not ask for riches or wealth or honor or life of those who hate you, Nor did you even ask for a long life, but you asked for wisdom and knowledge so that you may rule my people over whom I have made you king. Wisdom and knowledge have been granted to you, and I will also give you riches, wealth, and honor. In other words, Solomon had things in the right order. He wasn't saying, God, give me riches and wealth, he was saying, God, give me wisdom. And God delighted in him, and then he also gave him riches and wealth. And I would suggest to you that that we should make obtaining God's kind of wisdom number one, and that God will then bless us with riches and wealth and honor the way that he did Solomon. So we're, we're um, proceeding here. Let me... Um, I think I missed one, so <laughs> let me do one more. Okay. So, I don't know if you can tell what this is, but rocket ship. In the 1970s, there was a Saturn V. So, on the left, it's standing upward, about to shoot up to the moon, and on the right, we see the five rockets, you know, that are propelling that first stage. I mean, or the third stage, I guess. And, um, and there were also, you know, when the third stage would drop, there was also a second stage, and that had rockets. And there was a first stage at the very top, also. But these are rockets. And the reason that we had these five rockets was that we could not create one that was powerful enough to lift up this, you know, extremely heavy craft. Um, So, my, I guess what I'm suggesting is that um, a single strategy toward achieving retirement, freedom and retirement isn't enough. We need to, it's gotta be multi-strategied you know multiple strategies and I'll get into that but before I do I'm going to give you two other word pictures one of them is a stool and the stools have been put away which is okay oh thanks thanks so you thank you so um You see this stool and it's got four legs. But many stools have three legs. And so we're going to pretend this one has three. The one leg in retirement is called Social Security. And Social Security was intended when it was created in 1935 to provide 40 percent of what we would need for retirement. A second leg. Is called pension, and and uh, there used to everyone or many people used to have either a government pension or a corporate pension, and that was to be a second a second source of income. And a third source of income, the third leg, was supposed to be personal savings. Well, pensions are are only available to those who've been grandfathered in, and so they're going away. So they replaced the pension with four 1Ks. And uh, so in, instead of it being a defined benefit plan, it's a defined contribution plan. You just put in as much as you can or as much as you're able, and then the um, the company or the government will do some matching And then you take that money and you put it into a growth mutual fund so that you can get a high rate of return. And you allow this to multiply and to compound over the course of years and decades. And it provides, you know, a good long leg. And then and then personal savings is. you know, it can be IRAs or it's, it's money that you accumulate and other assets that you accumulate outside your place of work. So those are the three legs of the, of the three-legged stool. And it takes all three legs to really replace all your income and to, um, to give you com- comfortable retirement. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry about that. Okay. Okay. So I want to show you something else. This is a third way of looking at things. You know, there's the Saturn fives, there's a three-legged stool, but there's also the man and the cart. So pretend that this is a cart. It's got wheels, you know, it's a fine cart, and, um, but who's going to pull this cart? Well, the man, I'm the one pulling the cart. It's got, it's got these uh, ropes, and, uh, and I'm pulling the cart And as a young man, I'm saying, hey, no problem. I mean, it is a problem. But as I get older, I say, I can still do it. But when I get older still, and I'm in retirement, I say, oh, I don't want to pull this card anymore. It's too much trouble. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what I have, what I have is I have these two newborn bulls, newborn oxen. And, and the oxen is like this big, and he's, he's managing to walk a little bit, you know, and this one's over here. And so I'm pulling the cart, and these little oxen, they can't do anything. You know, they're just struggling to walk. But I'm, as I'm getting older, these oxen are getting bigger. And when I finally get to the point where I can't pull the cart anymore, these oxen are huge. I mean, they're large oxen. And so what do I do? I get into the cart. I lie on the hay. I'm eating my bonbons. <laughs> <laughs> and, these, and these oxen are pulling the cart for me. And that, that is the retirement system that we set up in America. Okay, so I want to tell you about some of these um, engines, the five engines. And the first one I want to suggest is paying tithes. Because I have heard, you know, that you can't outgive God. And I myself have been paying tithes for many, many years. And uh, there's a verse, Proverbs 3, 9, and 10. Honor the Lord from your wealth, from the first of your produce so that your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. In other words, we're honoring God from the first fruits and and he's giving us wealth. He's outgiving us. And so I believe that this is one of the five engines. I believe another engine is the way that we develop our careers we can't give up i want to i um and so i want to give you a little testimony about about how i learned to write resumes and how i learned to interview you know with um you know for new jobs um i really didn't know anything until i after i had finished my um my bachelor's degree in my mba i mean I, I it was only in the strength Of this very strong recommendation that my pastor had given to me I mean let me ask you this Stephanie if um, if anyone here were to list you as a reference would you give a strong testimony (laughs) (laughs) okay well you I mean you would be you would say wow this is the greatest person in the world right okay well that's what somebody did for me so um, I got in there and I was in a stockbroker's office, and um, I saw these men and women, both, and uh, they were very successful. You know, some of them were making hundreds of thousands a year, and other ones were, you know, were making close. I mean, you know, you know. And this was quite a while ago, and um, and it, I finally, I finally came to understand what it meant to be a professional person. I mean what how to act you know and then I realized that my resume was lacking because all I had on there was some um, you know was graduation I graduated from this college and so I um, so it helped you know so then I thought about my experience I had previously had a job you know where I was uh, billing for Medicare and then I was working for this company And then I um, and then I took a class from Hner Block and I worked for them for a year and I took another class. I worked a second year and then I started my own little tax company for two years. And um, so so then that was, um, you know, that was like entrepreneurship. So I did these things and I was dressing up my resume purposefully. And then and then I. uh, I heard about this job, and, uh, and this would have been the greatest job ever, you know, uh, helping to manage the the pension system for the state of Michigan as an equity analyst, and since I was a financial guy. So, what I did was I, um, I got a book, and, uh, and the person who wrote, the author of this book had that job, and he was describing what he did on the job, so in the interview, I said, well, this is what you do. You do these five things. And then they were really impressed with me, almost as though I had, had done these things in the past. And I ended up, um, I didn't get the job, but I was number two out of 103 people. So anyway, that is... Uh, so let me, let me do this. It's hard to see this, but you can see that there's a curve, that there are lines that go up on the, on the, this is, this is money, but it's also time. So, the time span is 30 years. Uh, for the one that's going up the most, this money is compounding at 8 eight or 9% per year. And you can see that geometrically, what starts with little ends up a lot. And as you have smaller and smaller, you know, the more, um, you know, the lower, sorry, the lower, <laughs> the lower amount of interest, the compound interest you're willing to take, you know, the results are lower over the course of time. And if you look at the lowest one, it might just be cash under the mattress. You know, it didn't go anywhere. And then, and then above that might be putting your money into some savings account. And after that, you know, maybe it's um, putting your money into some bonds or something. And then after that, you know, the highest one would be stocks. And, um, and I want to tell you, it's 30 years. If you were to chop off five years, you're not chopping chopping it from the left, you're chopping it from the right. If you chop it from the right, then some of that beautiful geometric increase you lose, and that's why it's important to start early and to not take the money out, but let it do its work over, you know, over the years. Um, But I also want to say it's like time. It's like, it's like, you know, I had a brother. Have a brother who was a um, early bloomer. I mean, he got this vision and he started working hard when he was eight years old. You know, I was a later bloomer. You know, I started figuring things out in my thirties. You know, instead of, um, you know, if if we're a later bloomer, then we're not. Gonna, we may not reach the same altitude as somebody who's an early bloomer. So it's good to get vision as as early as we can in life and to pursue it. Okay, so. um, Another um, so homeownership, stock market ties. Well, okay, I didn't mention homeownership, but um, homeownership is definitely one of those uh, rackets, because in my situation, you know, I was really poor. But there was, there was a federal program um, it, right now it's called Rural Housing Development. When I took it, it was called Rural, it was called Farmers Home. Anyway, they, um, they allowed me to buy a house with $2,000 down. And, uh, and nine years ago, I finished paying off the house. But the value of the house, of course, there was inflation. But the value of the house is more than tripled. So put two thousand dollars down. I paid it off so that I no longer have a mortgage payment, and it, and the value is more than tripled. And that's definitely one of those uh, rocket engines on the on the Saturn V. Some people build profitable businesses. You know, it takes some creativity, it takes some ingenuity, Um, you know, you're working off the ground, or maybe you can buy a business that's already begun, but, um, you know, it's definitely one way to to create wealth. And then the last thing that I have is just hard work and expecting a a, um, profit. And I saw this 33 years ago, in my 30s, and I read... Proverbs 14 verse 23 in all labor there is profit but mere talk leads only to poverty and my budget was very tight in those years extremely tight you know I mean at one there was this one week I remember my wife said um, I have twelve dollars and I'm expected to buy a whole week's groceries for this family on twelve dollars well, Who knows, but the grace of God, because we didn't miss any meals. I mean, God was faithful. But, um, but I realized when I saw that in all labor, there's profit that I needed to work harder and um, because I needed as many profits as I could. and, And while I was already doing this tasks. You know, I decided to choose those tasks that had the highest, you know, rate of return. And this is called seizing opportunities. You see something, you choose something with a high rate of return for whatever goal you have. You know, you plow into it, and um, and you've seized an opportunity. It's taking you forward. So we're getting we're getting up here. So. Um, Now, I just want to cover the mistakes, Um, and I only have four of them here. One mistake, a big one, is to live with debt. You know, if we live with debt, then we can't save. We spend our money paying debt payments instead of contributing to a, a 401k. And the Bible, Proverbs 22.7, that the servant is, the debtor is servant to the lender. I want to tell you that we don't want to, we don't want to serve the lender. We want to serve the Lord. And if we have this debt, then we have, you know, we have a very demanding, uh, you know, anyway, master, you know. And we don't need that master. So we fight that. We try to... destroy debt as, as soon as we can and and people are willing to accept you know a tenth of a percent in a checking account, or you know or a half percent or two percent or something like that and yet they'll have they'll carry credit card debt that, that charges them 25 percent or or maybe car loans or you know other kinds of debt you know and um, and they're really going backwards, and, um, you know, that the way that we did it was, you know, we're buying cheap cars from individuals, and and I mean, this last car was $6,300, but before that I had never, I had never uh, bought a car for more than $4,000, uh, and then I would try to, I never had a debt for more than a few months, you know, I would just try to throw money at it, and So anyway, um, a second one is addictions. If we're addicted to drugs, it's definitely going to suck away our money. You know, if we're addicted to, um, you know, to alcohol and stuff like that, you know, it's 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 taking our money. I mean, we you know, we have to. A third one is um, lottery tickets and casino gambling, you know, lottery tickets. You know, it took me. After they introduced this, it took me about two weeks to figure out that if if I'm buying a lottery ticket for $10 and they're giving me $5 back, you know, $5 goes to the state, the other $5, they kind of bunch it together. There's some big winners and then lots of little losers, but the expected value is still, five. I'm never going to prosper by doing that. And casino gambling, I think they give you more like 80 cents on the dollar. Um, But you know, I had a friend who had a gambling habit, he finally paid it off. And then years later, he got married. And then I mean, he got married and got divorced. And he was so impacted, so uh, depressed by his divorce that he gambled in this casino for a week and he Walked away with seventy thousand dollars worth of debt, and um, and then he had to go back to work because he was already retired. He went back to work. He worked another seven years and managed to pay off the seventy thousand dollars. I mean, oh, what a penalty that was! I mean, it's um, okay. The, this is the um, the fourth um, the fourth mistake: co-signing. Co-signing other people's debts, including our children's debts. Years ago, I wanted to co-sign my oldest son's student loan at college, and my wife said, "Absolutely not." She was wise, and she was correct, and she was determined. And I said, "Okay, dear." <laughs> so, so we didn't do it for him. We didn't do it for any of our other three children. But when we do co-sign, it's a great way to get trapped and to beat up, get beat up forever. And then it says in Proverbs 6, 1 through 5, My child, if you have put up security for a friend's debt or agreed to guarantee the debt of a stranger, if you have trapped yourself by your agreement and are caught by what you said, now swallow your pride. And go and beg for your to have your name erased and don't put it off and do it now and don't rest until you do. Save yourself like a gazelle escaping from a hunter and like a bird from a net. Well, I want to tell you that my son, he went to college. And the ramification was that the interest rate on his student loan was a couple percent higher. but he was quick to try to minimize that if he could. And um, and to pay it off quickly afterwards. And he got his education. And we were not trapped under this mountain of debt like a chain around the neck. So what Solomon said was um, was good for us. And the last thing I want to uh, mention is life insurance. Because if, if we have a family, if we have a spouse, and we have children depending upon us, um, it's only responsible to have life insurance. So that if, because it's cheap, and if something happens to us, we don't want them to fall off some financial cliff. I mean, they're already under emotional duress, And why would we want them to fall off a cliff financially? And if we're not supporting anybody, but we don't have enough for for um, funeral and burial and that kind of stuff, um, then we need at least, you know, some a little bit of insurance to cover those expenses. Of course, another way of doing it is um, to prepay, you know, some of these expenses. But I yeah. want to tell you that The term insurance is the way to go and not whole life, because whole life has at least four problems. One problem is that in the first two or three years, you accumulate no cash value. You know, another problem is that the um, is that the cost of your insurance, you know, the actual cost of insuring you is going up every single year, it's not level. Another uh, problem is that the money that you have in there in a whole life policy is usually earning maybe two percent. And you could have that same money elsewhere in a in a mutual fund earning nine percent. So why settle for two? And the fourth problem is that is let's say you have a twenty five thousand, you know, policy and you whole life policy. And you think, well, this will help pay my final expenses and. And let's say that your um, your cash value goes up to twenty thousand dollars over so many years. Well, when they when you die, what happens is that you get twenty five thousand, but twenty of the twenty five is your money, and the insurance company all they lost was five thousand. So you're so you're insuring yourself, and you're really letting the insurance company off the hook. And yet they're using your two percent money and and investing it at whatever they want. I mean it's um so it's just not right. And and let's say you have a whole life policy and it's a twenty five thousand dollar policy and you had twenty thousand dollars of cash value and you you take out the twenty thousand dollars. Well, when you die, you, they're not giving you twenty five thousand. They're just giving you. You're five thousand, in other words, you're subtracting that twenty thousand dollar loan from the from the Facebook of the face amount of the policy, and uh, you and you're only getting in the five thousand. And so there's a reason why in life insurance, I mean everybody's pushing it whole life. I mean I mean, I don't know about you, but I get emails, I get letters from the mail, I get letters from the credit union, unsolicited, everybody wants to sell it. But it's because it's for them, for their sake, (laughs) and not for our sake. So so, um, term insurance is the way to go. Okay, well, God bless you. Thank you for the opportunity to, I hope it's a service. Thanks. Thank you for listening today. Take a moment and ask Holy Spirit what he wants you to do with what you've learned. And remember, with God, all things are possible. So keep dreaming. Keep praying and simply obey, because God is good, and he has good plans for you. You can subscribe to our blogs, learn about our speakers, and even hear from one of our team members how you can take part in transforming a city, your city with Christ. There's no time like the present. Visit ShekinahOnline.com. If this doesn't excite you, watch for our new and God-inspired product line, a newly released book by Stephanie Butler, more testimonies from our listeners like you, working to bring unity in cities across the world. If you feel led to support our podcast, you may do so on our Shekinah.com website. Or if you would like to support us monthly, there is a link labeled Listener Support on Every Podcast. Until next time, we thank you, we love you, have a blessed day.